Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read from Psalm 24, or the 24th hymn of the Old Testament people of God. A psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Salah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts, he is the King of glory. Salah. This is the word of the Lord. It's a possibility that this particular hymn or psalm was written in context with 2 Samuel chapter 6, where God's ark, his throne, that is to be in the midst of his people, had previously been captured by the Philistines, but now was being restored back into the house of the Lord. And so David bringing it back into the city of Jerusalem, that has hesitation, right? It takes three months of the ark being in a, a man's house. And David finally learns that God has blessed the man in whose house the ark has been, so he brings it all the rest of the way to Jerusalem. What we see in this text. First, we start out with praising the Lord for his creation. That all of this, everything that we see around us, belongs to God. The earth is Yahweh's, the fullness thereof. So there's nothing here that does not fall under his domain. There's nothing here that is not a part of his creation. So all of the world, all who dwell therein, you, me, the non-believer, anyone, right? Any person is a creation of God, a creature that he has made. Also, as we know, that he loves and cares for too and has sent Jesus to die for. That part not here, in that verse at least. Earth is in contrast to sea in this particular moment. We think of the word earth, we think of the planet earth, but the word earth in Hebrew, also land, um, is another way to translate that word. And so here it's the distinction actually of Genesis chapter 1, the days of the week for creation. God said, let there be light. There was light the first day, right? And then the second day, he separated the water above from the water below, calling the gap in between heaven or sky. The third day, he separates the waters below um, and calling forth dry ground, land, from their midst. That helps us see verse 2. 
that he founded the land upon the sea, and he established the land upon the rivers. So waters, I don't want to say primary, although primary can have the meaning of first, but waters there, and then God brings forth the land upon the water is the picture that we're seeing here in verse 2. Verse 3 asks a question, and this is a great opportunity as the scripture asks questions to allow our children to answer those questions, right? You don't need to come up with your own questions in this chapter necessarily. You've got one already in verse 3 and another in verse 8 and another in verse 10, although 8 and 10 are the same question, right? So with verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? That hill is a reference to Mount Zion, uh, in particular where Solomon is going to build the temple eventually. Who will ascend this hill? Who will go? Who will stand in his holy place? Who's going to stand in the Lord's temple? Who is going to stand in the Lord's presence? Now, ultimately, this text, David here pointing to the idea of people, but we are going to make the jump to Christ, right? Who is going to ascend the hill of the Lord, of Yahweh? We think of Jesus ascending on Good Friday up the hill outside of the city of Jerusalem to his crucifixion. Who shall stand in his holy place? That it is Jesus who stands before the throne of God the Father on our behalf. Who can do this? Who, who is this one? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, This is a spot where you could include a question to your children. Are there any of these? Do you meet this requirement? Do I have clean hands? Do I have a pure heart? Right? I mean, that's the idea we confess in our general confession together that I have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. Not just the the physical actions of my body that are witnessable, But even the things inside, even the things that I think in my heart or in my mind, even those things can reject the Lord. And so he who is clean in both. This will connect well to Psalm 51 later where David writes, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. None of us are worthy. None of us meet this description. Verse 5, he will receive blessings from Yahweh. Righteousness from the God of his salvation. Notice there, even if we were pure of heart, it is not our righteousness. Ultimately, it is not our righteousness before God that is of any account. Right? Even that one who would be pure of heart and come before God would receive God's righteousness. God's salvation. See that even word right there? Even if we were innocent, even if we were clean and pure, we would still need God to save us. That's the kind of language that we see right there, right? This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. God of Jacob, so it's a common way for the the God of Israel to be referenced is to the patriarchs. So he's the God of Abraham, he's the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's how God himself will introduce himself to Moses at the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3. Those who seek the face of God. This is probably where that more recent movement historically of of the seekers has come from, uh, or seeker-driven services, those kinds of conversation points. But 
there are those who, even though they're sinful, which is all of us, but there are those who, in the midst of their sin, recognize that they are sinful. They recognize their brokenness, and they're they're recognizing, as we might even say, that that emptiness, that there's something off, there's something wrong. And so they may not know where to go. They may not know who it is that they are seeking. But the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, is the one who calls, gathers, and enlightens his church. And so we thank the Lord for the way he has worked throughout the ages to do just that. The word Salah shows up in verse 6 and in verse 10. A reminder here, this is an unknown word. We simply do not know what this is. It's 74 times that it's used in the book of Psalms. Most likely some sort of a musical notation, but we can't be certain. Verse 7 and 8, and then verse 9 and 10, are almost identical. It's almost a complete repetition. There is some difference between the two, but looking at it repetitively is fine to do in this particular case. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Well, that question is going to be answered in verse 8. We're going to look at it as Jesus, right? Now, this is the reason why the idea at the beginning of this possibly being a psalm that is written for the return of the ark, the throne of God, into Jerusalem. The city gates are being told to open, that God may come in. Right? Fitting context for this. The throne of God being brought into Jerusalem would have been seen in that sort of a way. And we know David, King David, was praising God that day and dancing gets in trouble with that with a wife. Now, we would more specifically see that as Jesus, right, the king of glory, and we would think of Palm Sunday as Jesus rides on the donkey into the city of Jerusalem, the king of glory coming for us to save us. The picture of the head, lifting up the head, O gates, lifting up O ancient doors, It's possible we have a little personification going on there, that David is treating the gates as though they are alive and they have heads like a person does and they can lift up their heads to see God coming. The other possibility here, though, is that that could be a reference to a particular piece of a gate, um, almost like you've probably seen on some doors at people's homes, they had those lion-shaped heads that are knockers, like door knockers. So if there's some kind of a a latch on the door or something like that of the gate of the city that would have to be lifted. That could be the referent there. Now, lifting up the ancient doors, think of the city gate that would, instead of opening like our door on our house, would open more like a garage door. It's lifted up, um, raised by pulleys or levers or, or whatever it may be. So anyway, open the gates that the king may come in. That's in verse 7. It's repeated again in verse 9. Now, verse 7 had be lifted up, so passive, verse 9, and lift them up, O ancient doors. That's a little bit more personified, <laughs> that the ancient door, just like the gate, would actually do the, the action, do the work. But again, this is, this is a city, and there would be men who have that task, that assignment. Verse 8 and verse 10 both ask that question, who is this king of glory? So let your children answer that question, right? They should be able to figure that one out. Again, talking about Jesus here, although perhaps the 
the throne of God himself, God the Father, with the Old Testament context. But David answers the question for us. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh. And then threefold on that. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. And then verse 10, Yahweh of hosts. Right, so we get those three different images. Strong and mighty. Mighty is another word, really, for strong. So a reference to God being omnipotent, that is all-powerful. Mighty in battle, a little more specific, right? This gets into the idea that the Lord has fought for his people. King David, a military king himself, has certainly seen this. He has seen God fight for him, going all the way back to his battle with Goliath. His first victory, at which then the peoples praise him, and Saul gets quite jealous not long thereafter. But he's done this throughout. You think of the Exodus account as he saves his people from Pharaoh's army in Egypt. You can think of the entrance into the promised land, how the Lord delivers his people first from an enemy like Moab before they get there, or the kings of Ammon. And then when they're in there, how he defeats Jericho, and they march around a city and they blow trumpets and it all falls crashing down. God's at work, right? The 300 men in Judges 7 and 8 that conquer 135,000 Midianite soldiers, God's at work. God is fighting for his people. This recognizes that point. And then verse 10, that he is Yahweh of hosts. This one's lost on us in modern English today. That word host means armies. We're not talking about a party host here. We're talking about a military army, right? God's soldiers, which actually ends up being the nation of Israel. Um, or you could look at him as the angel host, right? The, the angel armies of God. If you were to look up host in a dictionary, that's the that definition does show up. It's just an older and very unused version of that word for us today. So he is the king of glory, the one who has command over all of creation, the one who has command over even the angel army or the army of David, the king, even David humbling himself here before God, may he come in to his holy city. This we can see, again, with Holy Week, with Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem, coming to die, that he may one day bring us into the city, the new Jerusalem, that he is preparing for us even now. Amen. Praise me.